Hey, everyone, and welcome to the Recovery Executive Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jaworski, owner of Circle Social Inc. Today, we're speaking with Ann Barr, who is one of the VPs over at CollectRx, and it's a fascinating conversation about how to beat the insurance payers at their own game, um, so something I'm sure that everyone is interested in doing. Uh, before we get into that, I just want to hear a word from our sponsors, without who we would not be able to have this podcast. Stone Ridge Partners is a boutique M&A advisory firm that exclusively works with home health, hospice, and behavioral health companies. Stone Ridge was founded 20 years ago and closes the most deals in the lower middle market in this space. Please reach out to us via our website or jacob at stoneridgepartners.com if we can be a resource to your treatment center. We'd love to help you in any way we can. Thanks. Great. If you're not familiar with Stone Ridge Partners, I highly recommend getting familiar with them, checking out their website. Um, Jacob Lynch heads up the M&A side of things for the addiction treatment businesses, and I highly recommend talking to him. He's been a wealth of knowledge. I've known him for quite some time now um, and have had had the good fortune of, of getting to see them in their office and meeting him around various conferences in the country. So um, we also do the uh, YouTube channel show on what's trending in the industry and what's affecting your business. So might be worth checking out as well. Uh, as I mentioned, we are talking with Ann Barr, and she works with CollectRx. CollectRx is not really a billing company, though you might think it by the website or some of the conversations that we have around insurance and reimbursements, but really they're a very specialized firm. Um, and they do some very special reimbursements with some of the major payers. And she'll get into that because it's very much outside of my wheelhouse. Uh, I hate billing, as a lot of you probably do as well. And so I'm excited to have her on and explain it. Uh, Probably the key distinction here that I really like about what they do is the owner of the company used to work for the major payers, and he actually created a lot of the systems around how to negotiate and get lower um, costs for reimbursements. And so now he's working on the other side, and he's helping out the guys that are trying to get higher reimbursements. So as we all know, you know, PPOs and out-of-network policies are kind of the wild, wild west, right? It seems to be that anything goes. There's no standardization. You can't really tell why you're getting reimbursed for a reason or not. Um, payers will come back to you and say, well, we're only going to reimburse this much, or we're not going to reimburse you at all, you know, or you're going to have to wait a heck of a long time to get reimbursed. So and really goes into detail about how that all operates, what exists on your end that you can do um, to combat some of those techniques and be successful, and just helping us understand it better, you know, so that obviously if we have a better understanding of what's happening on their end, we can make better decisions on our end um, in terms of how we bill and how we organize our teams and what kind of um, insurance contracts we get in network with or contract with. So very excited to have her on. Let's take a listen. Hey, Anne, really appreciate you coming on the show today. Uh, can you tell all our listeners a little bit about yourself and the company that you work for? Yeah, sure. Thank you so much, Nick, and thank you for having me. Um, again, my name's Anne Barr. I'm the Senior Vice President here at CollectRx. I've been with the company for six years, and um, it's extremely niche what we do. We're the only company like us, and our name's confusing, so I just want to clear it up. We don't have anything to do with collections from patients or pharmaceuticals. What we do is help providers maximize reimbursements on out-of-network claims. Um, with that comes reduced uh, patient billings, and we eliminate the hassle of dealing with the insurance companies. Um, 
you know, we have it set up so we can work alongside with our customers and their in-house or outside billing teams just to make sure they're getting paid as much as possible on a claim-by-claim basis. And we work with any provider type, but we've been focusing specifically in the recovery space over the past four years. We have over 200 treatment centers that we work with currently, and we're able to uh, perform our services with two very important tools. Um, To get the results that we do, we rely heavily on our expertise. As a company, we've been around for 13 years. We have over 800 customers, again, 200 of which are treatment centers. Um, We're in all 50 states, and we handle over a billion dollars of -of out-of-network claims each year. We have a very interesting history that I want to just talk about briefly. Um, Back in the 90s, our founder invented the out-of-network negotiation industry for the payers. So he developed the four or the first uh, nine databases that the insurance companies were able to use to calculate usual and customary amounts back then. He also invented the single case negotiation proposal. Um, he sold his company, thought he was going to retire. The company turned into multi-plan actually, um, but he thought he was going to retire after selling his business. But he noticed that the playing field became so uneven. So. That's when he decided to use all of his knowledge from the other side to flip it around and help providers combat the tactics that the insurance companies are using. So in developing our initial team, he grabbed several senior executives and negotiators that worked with him during his previous career. And then since then, we've just been growing by leaps and bounds using his same strategy. So bringing over experts that intimately understand the payer's angle. Um, Our chief strategy officer ran the operations for Viant for many years. And Viant, uh, most of the listeners are probably very familiar with in this space as Viant's a huge repricer for the behavioral health industry. We also have former managers from Aetna and United, among many others, as well as um, skilled negotiators from vendors like Multiplan, GCS, Viant, NCN. Um, And this all puts us in a very interesting position. We understand the soft spots, so to speak, and vulnerabilities within the payer organizations. And with this dynamic, we know what needs to be done to combat their tactics, leading us to obtain additional payments for our customers. And so in addition to our expertise, we also have a database that's proprietary. It's called CRIXIS, stands for CollectRx Information Systems. And um, it's a data and analytics tool that we've developed to support us as we go toe-to-toe with the payers. So Crixus analyzes insurance policies from across the states. It provides um, comparable data that we've aggregated from over the years on every claim that we've worked. So we essentially have a bird's eye view of what the insurance companies are capable of paying, and it allows us to attract the, um, the tendencies and trends of the people on the insurance company side. So not only do we know the inner workings of the insurance companies, we know who to go to and what to say to make things happen. So I came across you, I mean, we connected through um, one of our mutual clients and they were using you guys and super happy with it. And when I started talking to you, I was having trouble understanding how you were different from a billing company. So you said that you're not a billing company, right? Um, So can you try to explain that a little bit about what differentiates you from a traditional like revenue cycle management firm? Sure. So We actually do have a revenue cycle arm where we are capable of doing the full billing and collection side of the spectrum, Um, but we have two separate and distinct out-of-network standalone uh, services that work alongside 
with what our customers are currently doing. So we're not actively going out and pitching our billing services necessarily. It's really um, an organic approach where if our customers are looking to put everything under one roof, once they're happy with our results, then we certainly can accommodate. So can you give us a specific example of what clients are coming to you for that you do that's, that's you know, again, different from um, a billing company? Sure. So we handle claims on a case-by-case basis. So we can identify uh, if it is a true underpayment. So there's two services that we have. Um, and I can go into that now if you'd like. But Yeah, let's let's jump into it because I think um, I know for me it was confusing and for other people I've talked to. So, you know, just trying to get an understanding of where things go before um, we get to more specifics. Yeah, sure. So on every out-of-network claim, the insurance companies use an algorithm. And the algorithm will either um, send the case out to negotiate prior to issuing any payment. So they'll basically give the provider some say in the allowable before it gets processed. Or they're just going to send a check in the EOB. And the EOB, you know, is a, you know, repricing down to usual and customary or however that policy defines the out-of-network reimbursement. So we have two services. Um, explanation of benefits. So it basically shows what the insurance company allowed and what they're ultimately paying to the provider and what portion is patient responsibility. So it kind of breaks down the um you know, the payment versus patient responsibility. Sure. And so we have two services, one for each situation. So one, we have a negotiation service where we handle the claims on a case-by-case basis. As soon as those negotiation facts proposals come through, we handle those, and we're able to bring them into the 90% range of billed charges on seven out of 10 of the standard cases that we work on. There are some limited benefit policies out there that are based on a percentage of Medicare rates. And on those particular policies, we're not able to get as high as our 90% range, but we can still bring a ton of value. Um, The other service is for the other situation where they don't reach out to negotiate and instead they just send a check in the EOB. And so what we do is appeal that payment and, um, you know, help the provider get an additional payment from the insurance company. And so... You know, I, I think it's it's still, I know we've talked about it quite a bit, it's a bit hard to kind of determine those fine lines there because some billing companies will do similar activities, right? Or they say that they're at least trying to get you higher payments based on X, Y, and Z. Um, so is there a particular level of expertise that you think you have that's different? Um, or where do you feel that you fit in to that? Yeah, I mean, I guess I, you can tell this isn't my wheelhouse. Yeah, I'd say, yeah, I'd say 85% of our customers use outside billing companies in conjunction with these two standalone services. So they outsource to us because we are the out-of-network experts. There is no one in the country that knows as much as we do about out-of-network. You know, our team came from the other side. Our founder, as I mentioned earlier, he kind of started this whole negotiation industry which helps payers reduce payments on out of network so we understand how to combat it um and we find that you know we're able to get much higher results than what um typical billing companies are able to get so we help to augment their efforts makes sense and i think that's always been the biggest challenge for um anyone in the healthcare space you know and then with the insurance payers is 
this lack of understanding and maybe the lopsided nature of how the field can be. So it sounds like that's where your owner came from, right? Is he was saying, hey, it's getting too one-sided here. Um, but it is, it is kind of a little bit of, I don't, I don't know if I want to say random, <laughs> but there's a negotiation that happens, right? And there's no standardization in place is maybe how we should say it, right? Like what you get paid is not necessarily what the person across the street gets paid, even, so, even though you're comparable programs with comparable levels of staff. Is that correct? Exactly. Okay. Yep. And, you know, to be clear, you know, billing companies, and most of them do a great job at, you know, the billing and the collections piece. But without a network, it's just so different. It's like the Wild West. And we have just so much data to back what we're doing. And, you know, with the large amount of customers that we have and doing this for 13 years, we just have so much information that we can draw from that they just don't have. And it's not, you know, to bash, to bash them at all because they're, they have a, a huge purpose. But it comes down to the data, right? I mean, even at, if I look in the back end of what we do, a lot of what we do, I feel, is to be a data company, right? We know the benchmarks. We know what works based on where we are in terms of customer journeys, where we're targeting. You know, all that value comes from the data. I think you're correct. So I'm curious to... You know, it's interesting because you're, and this happens all the time, right? But we go back to the insurance payer and you say, okay, we've looked at our data and historically um, you've paid more for this, right? And so we expect you to pay more here. You know, why, why does the insurance payer comply? You know, why don't they just come back and say, well, you know, that's what we paid. That's what we paid. We don't really care what we paid before. So you mean what, when we do our appeal? Yeah. So when you appeal, you know, why doesn't, why doesn't the insurance payer just come back and say, well, so what, you know, you're right. That data is accurate, but this is what we're paying today. <laughs> you know? Yeah. 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 Um, so it all comes down. It's the employer group that actually dictates how the policy reimburses. So they have a lot of the control. Um, and you know, when the insurance company sells to the employer group. The employer group can, you know, decide a bunch of different things. So there's a few different dials that they can pick from. So first would be like, would they negotiate settlements with the provider upfront prior to payment? And if so, at what rate? The second would be, you know, when a bill gets repriced, like you're talking about, you know, what methodology will be used to determine the allowable amount? Um, and then, you know, what's the maximum amount that would be paid? Um, the third thing, they have this dial that if the um, provider or patient pushes back on the low payment, what the payer should do. So it can range between what the payers call stand on data, which means that it doesn't move at all, to, um, you know, to increase the payments on one side, but then on the other side, making fairly drastic concessions to eliminate patient noise on the other end. So it's a spectrum and the employers can choose to be anywhere along this range. So what we're able to do is um, track what we've been able to get previously on a given plan. So we know what the thresholds are and where we can push for more and when it makes sense to do so. So yeah, certainly some plans that tell you to go pound sand um, and those we don't necessarily focus on because we know that there's nothing further that can be done. Everything we do is on a contingency basis. So, you know, we kind of gauge the, the chances of success and, um, you know, go from there. The, the claims that have no, 
no probability of success and you know, we wouldn't want to take it on but the ones that actually you know that we know we can move forward with and be successful um, we handle so it sounds like there's two contributing factors right so the insurance payer has signed a contract with an employer group and so they're legally bound by that contract and you can determine if they're following that or not or two the employer is obviously their customer and they're often very large customers and they don't want to lose that customer and so they're willing to make sure that they're in line with previous payment histories so that that customer stays happy with them. Would you say that's correct? So, I mean, there's a fine line because on every claim, the insurance companies want to pay as little as they can. It's all about their profits. But on the other side, they don't want to risk having that employer group go to a different carrier at open enrollment. So it's trying to figure out what's going to keep that employer group happy at the same time as how can I pay as little as we can. So, you know, they're going to try to pay as little as they can and see if you push back. Right, right. That makes sense. You know, I was talking with um, the chief medical officer for Cigna a couple of weeks ago, uh, Doug Nemesek, and, you know, I was asking him a couple of questions about why they reimbursed certain treatments that might not be evidence-based and things like that, right? And his response was, well, you know, that's what the employees want. So that's what the employer group wants. And so that's what we're willing to provide to get that contract. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, yeah, very interesting that, you know, this is just a lot of ins and outs. It's very complicated. Like you said, it's kind of the wild, wild west, right? There's just very little standardization in place and everyone's trying to kind of take the biggest piece of the pie that they can. Um, so I've asked a couple of questions here, but what are some of the couple of questions or what are the most common questions you hear when it comes to reimbursement in the behavioral health space? I think the biggest thing that we hear a lot is, you know, is out of network going away. Um, we think the answer, and we believe this because we've been doing this for so long and, um, it's kind of been pretty steady. The answer is kind of a resounding no. We know that it's, really difficult to manage out a network and the payers have done a really good job of getting the message out to providers and patients that are looking to constrain out of network but at the end of the day there's three key drivers of out of network that are ensuring that it'll grow over the next five to ten years so the number of coverage is growing so with the ACA full employment and the expansion of programs we have 10% more patients with coverage, and then the majority of plans have some component of out-of-network benefits. The second thing is narrow networks. Um, they're really driving out-of-network because, by definition, if there's fewer providers in the network, there are more opportunities for out-of-network. And then the third thing, you know, as you were mentioning, patients want out-of-network benefits, so the demand is there. And as long as there's demand, there's going to be policies without a network. And it's the employer groups that dictate the out-of-network reimbursements for their employees. So to keep the employees happy, having some level of out-of-network coverage is important. So, you know, the difficult thing is that out-of-network has gotten a lot more stringent. So it takes more time and more data from the provider side to be properly compensated. So, you know, we hear a lot of issues in the press about out-of-network, but the vast majority of these cases are for emergency care or hospital-based procedures in which one provider is out of network, even though you know the whole system's in network, um, out of network for approved care will continue to grow. Um, for behavioral health in particular, the in-network versus out-of-network question is particularly onerous. Um, behavioral health inpatient days have the 
highest rate of out-of-network claims out of any specialty. Um, and I was looking at a 2015 survey um, by the National Alliance on Mental Health and found that people were far less likely to find or use an in-network mental health provider compared to other medical specialties. Um, the same study found patients were far less likely to use in-network residential mental health facilities at like 67% compared to other types of inpatient medical care, which is at 92%. So one in three respondents did not receive care in an in-network residential mental health facility, and one in four had difficulty finding that, you know, one that would accept their insurance. So for these reasons, we focus on behavioral health out-of-network claims quite a bit. Given the market conditions, we understand that um, patients have a much more difficult time remaining in network and that payers are really taking advantage of this. So our goal here is to ensure that patients have access to the resources they need and that providers can continue to deliver this important care by ensuring that the payers meet their obligations. So we help to level the playing field for providers. So I'm really curious on this because um, my argument has been that, you know, out of network is not the way to go, at least in the addiction treatment space in particular. And where I base it, is, I, I would say I would agree with you that it's not going away, right? It's always going to be there. But what we're seeing is it's much harder to get out of state for out of network benefits. Um, and we're also seeing a lot higher deductibles for out of network. So, you know, $12,000 for an out of network deductible is not uncommon these days. So while right. it's still there, the, the out-of-network benefits are almost unusable for a lot of people. Um, do you have comments on that? You know, it varies so much across the different plans, so it's really hard to generalize. As I was mentioning, we have customers in all 50 states, and each employer group has, you know, the authority to pick and choose exactly how that plan is constructed. So um, there's just so much variety. And I mean, across the board, I, I know that there obviously are issues with the high deductible plans, um, but it doesn't seem to be the majority. Why do you, so a lot of treatment centers are moving in network because they've struggled a lot more with the out of network um, than in the past. So yeah. it sounds like there's, there's a difference in between what you're seeing and what the providers themselves are seeing, you know, do you know what could maybe account for that difference? Yeah, I, I just think every, every treatment center is going to see patients from different areas. And so again, it all comes down to the employer group. Hmm. And I mean, just to be honest, if you don't know how to properly handle out of network, it can seem like your reimbursements are not high enough for out of network, but it's just because you don't have the tools or the resources to maximize what you're getting paid. So I see a lot of providers that we work with, that we talk to, that are going in network with payers like Aetna, Cigna, United, that, I mean, historically are the best three payers that we've been able to work with in the behavioral health space. You know, and there's a lot of bullying going on as well, where, you know, um, the insurance companies will do some major audit or they'll um, do overpayment requests. And, you know, they'll try to bully um, providers to going in network. Um, and so, you know, it's all these different factors that are causing providers to get fed up 
with the insurance companies, and I totally get it. But there are ways. If you're going to stay out of network, to make lemonade out of the lemons. Hmm. What do you think about just, you know, standard documentation and things like that? You know, what I see in centers is just there's not accurate documentation going on. And so when you do try and get an accurate reimbursement for a claim, you know, it's very easy for the insurance payer to come back. You know, in terms of what you guys are doing on the billing end, you know, do you see that need as well with the clients that you're working with where they just don't have the proper documentation and systems in place to get properly reimbursed? Yeah. You know, and, Again, that's one of these tactics that the insurance companies start using where they, you know, they're trying to find. And I know there have been some bad seeds in the industry that have hurt the good seeds. And so, you know, now the insurance companies are trying to, and I think this is what you're um, alluding to, is when, you know, they'll start doing medical records requests rampantly um, because they're really trying to find some kind of vulnerability to where you might be, you know, billing something incorrectly. Um, so they're trying to find, you know, evidence of fraud or whatever it might be. Um, so, I mean, we see it here and there. It, I mean, it really just depends on the provider. Yeah, I think at the end of the day, it comes down to the expertise. Like you said, you know, we had a client where they were, some insurance company was trying to claw back um, or an overpayment, you know, claimed on their end that was like from three or four years ago, you know, and luckily they had someone on staff that was like, well, no, according to the contract, you can't request an overpayment for anything that was, you know, less than, or sorry, past two years old, you know, but if you don't know what's built into your contracts and things like that, it's very easy to, um, you know, have, have a lot of concern about what the insurance company is asking for and maybe paying them back, you know, or angering them, right? So I think that's the other concern that we've talked about before is there's this worry that if I don't capitulate here that I'm going to suddenly have an audit on my hands next month <laughs> because I made the yeah. payer angry. Right. Yeah. yeah. And that's what they want you to think. And again, it's all this bullying and it's, it's a shame. Hmm. So it kind of related to what we're talking about here, you know, it seems like a lot of policies will pay out differently for the same level of care to different providers in the same state. You know, can you clarify or provide some clarity there? Yeah, so, you know, <laughs> reimbursement in or out of network um, are incredibly complex. You know, the insurance companies intentionally try to make things as clear as mud. And there's a variety, or a whole wide variety of policies, like I was mentioning, that reimburse at different rates. So there's limitations in the benefits. There's different out-of-network conditions. And then how the calculations are performed is a whole different thing. And then you take into consideration patient responsibility and other variables. So um, as I was mentioning, when the insurance company sells to the employer group, the employer group will dial up or dial down the out-of-network benefits. Um, and, I mean, essentially, the more they pay for the insurance premiums for the employees, the more that can be reimbursed by the plan. And the lower that they pay for the premiums, the less it's reimbursed. And so, again, there's those various styles that the employer groups can choose. And whatever the employer chooses, it's very important to note that the payer has data to support its position. So no matter what they end up paying, they can support it using their data. And so, you know, in order to maximize reimbursements, you really need to understand the policies and their conditions and also know the most effective way to negotiate with the payers to increase your chances of success. 
Very interesting. And so is there a way to compare reimbursements across programs or how do you know what an appropriate reimbursement is? So you really don't. And that's the big problem without having comparable data to understand what the payers are willing to reimburse for services. You're really hampered in what you can do. Um, I say the closest thing to, you know, kind of the information that we have is fair health which was created by the payers in a response actually to a lawsuit involving payers incorrectly using usual and customary data. Um, previously, pricing was based off Medicare, and in some instances, Fair Health took the place of it. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of Fair Health, but it's a nonprofit, and it's the payers that contribute the data, and it's the payers that are the consumers of the data, and payers have the ability to refute your arguments since they subscribe to Fair Health themselves as well. So if you try to use it, they can refute it. Um, and additionally, Fair Health by design is not inexpensive. So I say the best tip is just to keep track of your own data. And I know it's more work and pretty time consuming, but this way you can prove that the insurance company's payments are inadequate. Um, of course, like I mentioned, we use our database Frixis because the payers have a harder time refuting their own prior payments, um, which we can hold them to. Um, you need to be able to argue that the insurance company's reimbursement level is inconsistent with your own history and preferably the history of other providers in the community, which information, that information is kind of hard to have unless you have friends um, in the industry that are willing to share their information. But remember, the insurance companies are tracking everything that you do down to the names titles and discount levels everyone in your business office gives so you know you need to know um you need to track you know need to know how to track the different insurance policies that you encounter so you have an idea of how the policy should reimburse and a huge tip that i would give and most listeners are probably doing this already but um I'm surprised that a lot don't that I speak with. So when checking the benefits up front that the patients have, pick up the phone instead of using an online verification tool. Um, instead of just seeing that the patient has out-of-network benefits, you can ask a human specifically, how does this policy reimburse for out-of-network claims? Is it based on a usual and customary calculation or is it based on a multiple of Medicare? So with that answer, um, you'll have a good idea if it's you know a limited benefit policy or if it's able to reimburse higher. You're saying that like the, some of the automated online verification tools don't provide that same information. Yeah. Okay. It'll just give like coinsurance and deductible typically and out of pocket maximum. Okay. But it doesn't go into the methodology for the reimbursement. Got it. And you're talking a lot about usual and customary calculation. Um, can you just give a little bit more of a definition or background and what that actually means in terms of how the payers use it? Yeah. So usual and customary is a definition that's embedded in, you know, the, the language with a lot of the out-of-network policies that are out there. And the usual and customary policies are going to be the richer plans that the employer groups pay more money for. So usual and customary, we also use interchangeably with a standard policy because it's standard, it's usual and customary versus a limited, a policy that's limited in its benefits with you know, um, some sort of um, like Medicare, like a Medicare-based policy. Like there's um, a couple plans out there. MRC2 is a Cigna plan that reimburses at 110 to 140% typically of Medicare rates. And then United has an MNRP plan 
that defines the reimbursement as the same kind of thing, 110, 140%. Um, and so with usual and customary, you're not hindered to, you know, a really low, you know, pegged to a really low um, fee schedule. Got it. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And another kind of part of the conversation I was having um, with some of the medical payers or the insurance payers was that they're often saying that they're very happy to reimburse, right, um, if it's effective. So, you know, the cost for an emergency room visit or a liver, you know, transplant five years from now of an alcoholic is a hell of a lot more expensive than covering two stays in a treatment center. Um, but they were saying that, you know, this is just a lack of data among a lot of um, programs in terms of effectiveness or not. Do you have any comments in terms of data tracking or using effectiveness outcomes to increase reimbursement rates? No, I mean, we're not, we're not set up to look at things that way. I mean, we can, you know, use those kind of things in our arguments, but as far as like our historical data, we're not, you know, comparing those two. Got it. Okay. Um, so, you know, you get these judgments back or you get these statements back saying, hey, we're going to pay X amount and you disagree with that. You know, what are the methods of recourse for a program to go back um, for when it comes to underpayments? So, yeah, I mean, you can certainly appeal and we recommend appealing anything that you think is too low. Um, I mean, every policy, you have the right to appeal. So, I mean, the issue is it takes a lot of, you know, bodies to, and man hours to uh, see them through. And, you know, it's all about persistence because the insurance companies really are hoping that you give up and throw in the towel after they, you know, put you on hold for two hours just to find out the status of an appeal that you submitted. Or, you know, they tell you to call back in 10 days. And you call back in 10 days, they say call back in another 10 days. Then the next time you call, call us back in 20 days. So <laughs> it's this whole persistence game, you know, the battle of the wills that we call it, where they're really banking on you literally getting up and walking away, forgetting about it and throwing your hands up. So, you know, yes, appealing is huge. And then if those single case negotiations come through the fact, so that's the other situation, right? They don't just underpay. They will issue these single case proposals and, um, they'll make you think that they're at their max when really they're not. So the whole game is um, these vendors that the insurance companies hire um, are compensated based on the size of the discount they can get you to agree to. So say, you know, build charges are $1,000 and then um, the policy will reimburse at, is able to reimburse at 90%. Um, the negotiation proposal comes over at 60%. They know they can get up to 90%, you know, the vendor that's reaching out to the provider. And the provider signs off at 70% uh, of bill charges. So, and that's what the vendor is saying that the max is. So their job is to convince the provider that that 70% is as high as they can go, when really they can go to 90 so when the provider signs off at that amount, then that, that uh, negotiation vendor gets compensated, gets a commission based on that 20% savings that they save the insurance company. Oh, it's so interesting. <laughs> it is. It's crazy. It's 
totally crazy. And so we have expert negotiators at our company that came from working on the other side. So it's a very interesting dynamic. They're dealing with their former colleagues at these vendors. So they know that we know what they know. And then we have all of our data to understand where the true max is. So we can call their bluff on it. And so while providers are just getting these, you know, these negotiations that they have to go back and forth on, and it does take a lot of time, you know, they just send them over to us and then we fight for them so they don't have to. And then we make sure that they are getting paid as much as possible. Huh. Man, uh, so complicated. It um, is. In terms of these negotiations, then, you know, we mentioned it briefly before. Is there a concern that if you're too aggressive that it's going to ruin a relationship with the payer or the vendor? Um, you know, we hear this a lot from our customers. Um, and that's, you know, our customers are always thinking that they have a great relationship with the payers and the vendors. And that's what they want you to believe. And, you know, the bottom line is they're not your friends. So they're continually trying to pay less money. And it's all about their profits, like I mentioned earlier. And, you know, we like to think of it this way. Um, from nine to five, they're figuring out how to pay you less. And then our behavioral health providers are treating patients and saving lives around the clock. So something's really not right here. So you deserve every penny, you know, that you fight for. Um, these vendors, you know, I was mentioning are compensated on how much money they save their clients, the insurance companies. So the ultimate goal is for the insurance companies to negotiate settlements. And so in the grand scheme of things, and no offense, no one provider um, is going to raise a flag just because, you know, they're calling to negotiate or, you know, fighting for what they believe they should be paid because they're just one grain of sand on a mile long beach from the payer's perspective. Um, on a one-on-one -on -one basis though, when you're dealing with these negotiation vendors, they try to make you think that you're friends with them. So you think that you're getting a good deal, um, but it's really not the case. Um, the vendors actually report back to the insurance companies by batching results by tax ID numbers, not your specific name. So in the end, you're really just a number to the payers. So if Multiplan or like an other third party reaches out to do a contract, you know, should programs enter into an agreement like that? No, 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 no. So these third party rental agreements like with Multiplan are not signed with an individual payer. Multiplan is not an insurance company. Multiplan is a third party that contracts with a lot of different payers and they sound really easy um, with one contract, you can essentially have a contract with all the payers that are signed up on their network. Um, but most providers don't understand how detrimental they can be. So these are the reasons why these agreements do not make sense. The first thing is you never know when they're going to apply the agreement. So it's completely up to the insurance company to determine when they'll utilize it. Um, their decision is based on whatever pricing will yield the lowest possible payment to you, which is either the third-party rental agreement rate or how the patient's policy defines out-of-network benefits. So even if a patient has a third-party's logo on their insurance card, like a multi-plan logo or uh, PHCS, it doesn't necessarily mean it'll be utilized. Um, second, these contracts act as caps on your out-of-network reimbursement. So they will never reimburse higher than the contracted rate that you've agreed to. So say you have a contract at 70% of charges with multi-plan. Um, if the policy would reimburse at 40% of charges, 
then there's no way the payer is going to use that contract and reimburse at the higher 70%. But if the policy reimburses at 80%, then of course the payer is going to use that contract because that way they only have to reimburse at 70% of charges. So on a side note, just like the same concept as earlier with the single case negotiations, um, the uh, multi-plan will get a commission from the payer on that 10% difference. So that's why they're so eager to get providers signed up with these networks. Um, the third thing is that vendors write language in the contract that allows for reductions like usual and customary cuts, multiple procedure reductions, code edits, um, and these things just unexpectedly drive the reimbursements downward. Um, another big issue is that sometimes providers don't realize that the reimbursement levels are based on a percentage of the allowed charges, not billed charges. So. This means that payers first take a cut to arrive at the allowed amount, then they apply the discount to that lowered amount. So from our experience, providers are much better off about these. Um, and just as a side note, we can provide a complimentary analysis if any listeners are in one of these agreements or considering entering into one of them. Um, we can let you know our thoughts. As I mentioned at the beginning, our founder started a company that became multi-plan. So we understand all the gotcha clauses and um, what to look out for. Wow. Wow. So, God, so much here. <laughs> I know. Well, I really, yeah. I really thank you for uh, sharing everything. And, you know, any, any final thoughts on what listeners should be understanding about out-of-network? Yeah. No, um, with out-of-network, in a perfect world, it would be reimbursed at 100% of bill charges. But that's not the case. The insurance companies are using a lot of tactics, so they only reimburse at a fraction of what you charge. Um, a big takeaway is that you should definitely negotiate the single case proposals because in reality, if you don't, the payers will most likely reprice the bill to much lower levels than what you were offered. And as I mentioned earlier, this is the best way to get them to reimburse as high as possible. Um, another tip is to obtain the data to prove that their, their payments are too low. Um, you need to be able to argue that the insurance companies the reimbursement is inconsistent with your own history. So they're tracking everything that you do down to everyone in your business office. So you should be doing the same. The third thing, be persistent. Don't give in easily if you think their offer or their payment is too low. Um, fourth, um, be careful when approached by multi-plan or these other third parties to enter into these network agreements. There's a reason they're easy to get into. They help the payers save money. And if the insurance companies save money, then you lose money. And then lastly, if you want to learn more about how we can help, we work on a case-by-case -case basis. We don't require any minimums or upfront costs. We're a great tool just to have in your pocket. And then another thing I wanted to offer, um, just as a thank you for tuning into the podcast, we'll provide all listeners with a complimentary review of their past 12 months of payments for Aetna, Cigna, and United. And this will let them know if and where there's potential to obtain additional payments. So, you know, if you want to take advantage of this, just go to collectrx.com to learn more and then make sure to mention the Recovery Executive Podcast when calling in. Ah, well, thanks, Anne. I appreciate you uh, yeah. offering an uh, offer there to the listeners. Uh, quick question on that, you know, same level reimbursement. I guess I would assume that that would change as a, on a year by year basis, right? Everyone rolls over plans and they have to maybe sign a new plan each year. So when you go back historically, can't the payer just argue that, hey, it's a new year and things have changed? 
Um, so when we go back the full year, we look at all of the EOBs within these three payer portals, Aetna, Cigna, United. So we're looking for, you know, underpayments. We're looking at, um, you know, again, certain payment differentials and remark codes that are on the EOBs that, you know, we understand, um, you know, very well. So we are able to pinpoint the claims that do have the highest probability of success. So, you know, the new year thing doesn't really work because, I mean, we're going we're going back on the older stuff. So we're, and it's a great thing because say, you know, right now we're working on claims for 2018, you know, earlier in the year, 2018, the deductible um, has generally been eaten up by that point and probably the out-of-pocket maximum. So any additional money we can bring in, it's all insurance money and not, you know, the patient responsibility piece. Huh, okay. Well, I really appreciate all the amazing information here, and it just emphasizes to me why we don't do anything related with insurance payments, and we deal completely <laughs> with marketing and operations. <laughs> I know. Oh, man. So. It is pretty wild. And thank you so much for having me on. Thanks, Anne. really appreciate it. And, you know, if people want to get in contact with you, what's the best way to do so? Um, I would say either through my direct line, which is 240-403-2831, or through email. And my email address is A-B-A-H-R at collectrx.com. Perfect. Well, to all our listeners out there, as always, I appreciate you guys tuning in. Um, the Recovery Executive Podcast can be found anywhere where podcasts are found. Tune in, iTunes, Stitcher, etc. Um, just go to the Recovery Executive Podcast, type it in, you'll find it really easily. You can download it, listen in on your way to work, or listen live streaming. And we are, of course, brought to you by Circle Social Inc., experts in strategic marketing and growth for addiction treatment behavioral health. Thank you so much, and talk to you next time.